God says to you personally. And so um, I, we're, we're launching a new series today called Thrive. I'm just going to speak for a few moments about what it means to thrive as a human. I want to uh, suggest to you that Jesus was, Jesus was, here, one more, a few more here, Donald, there you go. Uh, Jesus was and, and, and always will be the first human that flourished like God designed him to. And I think this is why 1 John, uh, 1 John 2, 6, it says this. It says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to allow God to help us flourish as people, his people on this planet. And that means all kinds of things. Um, it means that he wants us to be his voice and his hands and his feet. It means he wants us to live out our full potential. It means that he has purposes for us that we're gonna lean into. And so we're gonna talk about how to thrive in the next several weeks, and we're gonna talk about different areas of our lives where God wants us to thrive and what his design is. And so here's the question for this morning. What one thing, if you could do it every day, would cause you to flourish in a greater way than ever before in 2017? What one thing could you do? I think the obvious answer for the Christian, the obvious answer for the Christian is cultivating a time every day to spend with God. I think that is, that is the answer to, that is the beginning answer. That's the very crux, the, 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 the foundation of flourishing and thriving. Because here's the truth. You're not just a human being having a temporary spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. That is true. That's what's happening to you. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the great author and theologian. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. I think this is our challenge. This is our struggle. This is January 1. People are making all kinds of uh, uh, New Year's resolutions. I'm not suggesting you make resolutions. What I'm suggesting is you surrender it all to Jesus. What I'm suggesting is you make it a priority to spend time with Jesus every day. I want to make a promise to you. 2017 could be the greatest year of your life if it's the best spiritual year you've ever had. Why do I believe that? Because I think everything is spiritual. Oh, no, you know, I get up and go to work, then I go to church. You know, those are two different things. No. Not for the Christian. For the Christian, it's all about who God is and what he has planned and what is his potential that he sees for you. And, and the scriptures are very clear. We work for our, our bosses as unto the Lord. Right? This everything. It's, well, no, I have my hobbies and, and then I kind of do a little church thing. No, that's, that's not how the Bible describes it. And I think there's, a, there's a, a, a willingness for us at the beginning of the year to evaluate, to look back and to say, okay, what should I do? And I want to suggest to you that every area of your life will be affected if you have spiritual strength and growth this year. So how do you do that? 
This year I want to inspire you, mobilize you to spend time with Jesus every day because it's the way you prioritize your relationship with him. Spending time with him every day is a way of prioritizing. I prioritize my wife in my life. She is number one after Jesus, and she is, and she is the most important person that I have a relationship with in this world, and so I call her during the day. We have dates. We have date lunches and date nights. I think about what she, I, everything I do kind of revolves around her. I think we revolve our lives around Jesus when we spend time with him every day. It's the secret to the mindset, the right mindset. It's the single, check this out. I read a, some statistics this week that the number one single determining factor of whether people shared their faith was whether or not they spent time with Jesus every day. There's a thing here that we've got to get a hold of. All the other areas of your life are ordered when you prioritize this. Matthew 6.33, you know what it says? If you've been around church very much, you, you maybe know this scripture. Maybe you've never heard it before, but here's what it is. Jesus said, seek ye first, or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added. Everything you're worried about, everything you're concerned about, everything that's going on in your life, all these other things, these provisions will be added. Now, here's the problem. We spend all our time trying to add and then we lose our Jesus as the priority. May I suggest to you that, that when you make Jesus a priority, he adds. And when he adds, that means capacity. When he adds, your, your capacity is expanded. He gets to add stuff to you you never knew you could have. He never, you never knew you could do. His strength, his power, his calling, his purpose, all this happens. So I want to challenge you today. Today we're going to look at the scripture as a, as a, a way that we facilitate some time with God every day. All right? well, next week we'll launch 21 days of prayer. Right? 21 days of prayer is all about this idea of taking the first part of the year and focusing on Jesus and making him priority. All right? So we, we launch that next Sunday, January 8th through the 28th, and we'll talk more about that later. But today I want to challenge you to read scripture every day. Today I want to challenge you to read scripture every day. See, if prayer is when we talk to God, then reading scripture is when God talks to you and me. And that's why we're kicking off this brand new year with an initiative called Read Scripture 2017. Read Scripture 2017. It's a new scripture reading plan from the Bible Project. I want everybody to jump on at One Chapel. We're all gonna do this together this year with the Read Scripture app. You can download it at, the, at, the, at the, your app store. But here's the thing, most people struggle with reading the Bible, number one, because it's reading ancient literature is really hard. Think of how many other thousands of year old texts you spend time reading. Not very many. Reading Shakespeare is hard, right? It's, it's a few hundred years old. Um, it's ancient literature sometimes is really hard. Number two, the first few books are really strange. When you, when you try to read the Bible all year, here's what people do. They get, they get all revved up, and they're like, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year. And by March 1, they're in Leviticus, and they die there. <laughs> Leviticus is a weird book, man. It's just got weird stuff in it. I mean, there's all, in the first few books, there's a talking snake, and there's a, like in the third chapter. It's like just, there's 
floods and plagues and pharaohs and uh, anyway it's it's sometimes it can be really strange number three the bible is just long it takes perseverance it takes perseverance so we're going to try this new reading plan with videos book overviews stories that are going to help us uh, read together and get God's word into us because getting God's word is one of the keys to making sure you thrive as a human being. So here's John 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is the Apostle John, and he's saying to us that Jesus is the word of God. Sometimes we think it's the Bible, but the, the scriptures teach us that Jesus is God's word to us. Jesus is God's message to us. Jesus is God's love to us, right? And so, so this is what this is describing, and I think it speaks to the idea that the Bible has one unifying and overarching story that's pointing to Jesus. It points to Jesus himself. Jesus is the central character within the scriptures. If you look at some of these, some of these other scriptures you have in your message notes, um, in verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love how the Message Bible writes that verse. It says, God, Jesus became one of us and moved into the neighborhood. This, this is God's word to us, that he's with us. He reveals himself through Jesus. So Jesus was the flesh and blood representation of the word of God. Colossians 1.15 says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Yeah. He is this image of who God is. So looking at Jesus as the central character and then reading the scriptures and helping us understand who he is is what this is all about. John 6, 63 says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Amen. This is what Jesus said. Now that word spirit right there in the original language, the original Greek language is pneuma. Pneuma. Everybody say pneuma. pneuma. It starts with a P, but the P is silent. So many jokes, so many wonderful things that I don't have time for. Numa means, Numa means the breath of God. The breath of God. In this context, it means the breath of God for the fulfillment of what Je was just said. Jesus is saying that the words of God are breath to us. Jesus breathes his word into us. Jesus was saying that the word that God speaks to us is not just words. But more than that, there's a power that comes with it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God breathed. God breathed. Here's what happens. God breathed on the writers originally. He breathed his message into them. And then when you read it, God breathes again. Right. You ever had that moment where something jumped off the page at you? <gasps> God is breathing his word into your heart. It's not a normal book. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active. The Bible's not a normal book because it 
contains words from God, and they are alive and active, which means the Bible's not just a history book. It's not just a compilation of a bunch of writings. No, the scripture, the scriptures have the words of God in them, and they are alive and active by his spirit. The rest of verse 12 says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge Circle that word right there in your notes. He's able to judge the scriptures, able to judge the thoughts and intentions or motives of the heart. And so not only do the scriptures come alive, they'll also do surgery on you. They'll do surgery between your motives, what's right and what's wrong, your attitudes, your thoughts, your life. In other words, the scriptures will mess with your soul They'll mess with your, with your mind, your psyche, your heart. It'll get in there and mess with your attitudes. It'll mess with what comes out of your mouth. It'll mess with your relationships and how you approach them and how you deal with them. The Bible has something to say about every relationship you have. The Bible, the, the words of God will come into you and will, will influence how you treat your body. Number one, number one, resolution every year you know what it is I, I know cinnamon rolls on January 1 right you were all trying to lose weight start tomorrow number one is lose weight the Bible has something to say about how we treat our body the the, the words of God will mess with how you deal with your emotions but here's the cool part not only do the scriptures mess with those things, it gives you the power to live out your life with the way that God created you. He wants to give you power to live out what he's describing in the way you're supposed to live. So you're not just getting information about what you're to do, but you're getting the power to do it. So, but that doesn't happen automatically. There's a few things you and I need to do, all right? Number one in your outline is you and I have to have faith because faith is what activates the words of God. Faith activates the words of God. Hebrews 4.2 says, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. You can read your Bible and get absolutely nothing out of it. There are professors, seminary professors, that teach the Bible no more than I do or you do, and they don't have a vibrant relationship with God himself. Listen, the Bible, just, just with its words and pages, there's something else that makes it come alive. It is, the, it is faith. Attach your faith to what you read and it comes alive. Number two, revelation activates your faith. Some of you are like, oh, well, that's my problem when I read the Bible. I need more faith. Well, this is why number two is so important. Revelation from God activates our faith. In other words, when you hear God speak to you, boom, something happens. Faith rises in your soul. When you hear God speak to you, if you want your faith to come alive, where you actually believe what you're reading, then revelation has to happen. You have to believe that God wrote those words through his servants, and you have to believe that he's speaking to you now. And that revelation, as it happens to you, begins to create the aha moment, that aha experience. That's what we have to see in the scriptures. Mary, in the scripture, is one of these people 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, the angel came and spoke to her and said some crazy things to her. <laughs> Here's, I'm just going to pick it up because we're, we're, we're running short on time here. Verse 30, verse 30 says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, this would be like an alien showing up to a 15-year-old girl who lives in Bastrop and, and saying, you're going to birth the king who's going to rule over all the world. you got to see how crazy this sometimes would have sounded or felt to Mary. She says, verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Not only does this seem impossible, but it's physically impossible is what she's saying. She was saying, huh, I don't get it. How does this work? There was no revelation, but verse 35, look at what the angel said. It said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And that even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Notice the angel fed her faith by talking about her relative. Verse 37, I want you to see it. It's underlined, for no word from God will ever fail. Why don't you go ahead and circle that. Circle that whole phrase. No word of God will ever fail. In the original Greek language, that word word is rhema. And rhema means the revealed word of God. A revelation. A revelation. And I love it. Can I just speak that word over your life today? Could I stand here and you would receive it? And I could say, no words from God will ever fail you. No word from God will ever fail in your life. It may seem like it's taking a long time. It may seem delayed. It may seem discouraging, but no word of God will ever fail. Look at Mary's reaction in verse 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. (laughs) And that's the moment she got pregnant. The Holy Spirit touched her something supernatural happened to her. So, how do you get the Bible to come alive? You gotta have faith. How do you get faith? You have to have revelation. How do you get revelation? Ah, number three, meditation activates revelation. Meditating on God's word, probably the first time you read something in the Bible, it may not mean much to you. It takes time. You've got to slow down a little bit. You've got to read it, ponder it, think through it, give it some thought, talk about it with other people. That's why I want you to be in a group. I want you to look to 2017. We're going to be looking at how to do groups even a little bit more effectively and differently than we've done them in the past. Every person needs to talk about the scriptures with friends in a group. It's the way it gets into you. Joshua 1, 7 says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Ooh, sign me up for that one. That word meditate in the original Hebrew language is haga, hagda, and the word hagda means to ruminate. Ruminate. (laughs) You're ruminating 
on the word. You're meditating. And what's the picture that's inherent in this, in this word is a cow chewing its cud. Some of you are like, what's a cud? <laughs> Some of you are like, what's a cow? <sighs> a lot of city, city living around these parts. <laughs> A cow eats the grass, it goes into stomach, it, it chews, 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 goes into stomach, then he vomits it up, chews it some more, chews it some more, then swallows it again, then vomits it up, and chews it some more, and chews it some more, and chews it some more. That's the picture. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> it's not enough just to do the obligation or the duty of reading it. There's something more that God has in mind in the scriptures. And you have to have faith for that. And so grab a hold of that in 2017. And I'm going to help you. We're going to do this together. We're going to do this Bible project uh, together. Read scripture in 2017. The app is read scripture. The Bible project is the, what the app was made to be in concert with and to cooperate with. And so, um, so I'm going to let you watch a video right now. It's the first video in Genesis. And it'll give you a little overview. And this is a sample of how, so you read a few, you read a few verses, takes about 15 to 20 minutes a day in the plan, and then you um, watch a video. You watch a video that opens up a book. This is the video that opens up the book of Genesis. And so let's watch this together right now. The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring 
death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God, and then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now right here the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. 
And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1-11 through is all about. Isn't that cool? I love, there's little phrases, if you listen to those videos, this new technology called the brick. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it just, there's, it, it's well written. It helps you see the big picture. It helps you see the gospel throughout the Bible, the good news of Jesus. All right? I want you to just close your eyes here as we end our service together. I'm going to ask the, the band to lead us in one more song. And it's simply a song of surrender. As that video was describing, there is no way for you and I to make things right in our own lives or in the lives of others. We need the work of Christ. So close your eyes as I read this from the Message Bible. It says, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, Jesus said. Homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words. Words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on a solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved the house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. As your pastor, I wish I could keep the storms of life from coming, but I can't. But I can help you weather those storms and even help you thrive in the midst of them if you'll get God's words in you. During this song, I just want you to surrender. Make 2017 this moment where you're gonna let him and his words come into your heart.